Welcome to Haven Ridge this morning. It's good to see everyone. It's wonderful to have an opportunity to fellowship this morning as well. <laughs> good morning. Good morning, Jake. <laughs> All right. <laughs> good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Haven Ridge this morning. It's good to see everyone. Having uh, uh, in which they will sell coffee over there, and in order to get that started up and cranked up, they're selling coffee here. So if you'd like to sample that, there is hot boyer coffee in the pot. If you want to taste some of that, um, their website, theforestandthesea.com, I believe. Is, is that correct? I didn't have it written down. Forcingthesea.com um, if you'd like to purchase some of that coffee. So that's just an effort to help get them back over to Ireland where they can continue doing missionary work uh, there. Uh, all right. Uh, also, just we made the announcement last week that we'll be switching our app platform um, from Realm over to Discord. We made that announcement last week. I think most, many of the uh, of the church families already done that. Most of the conversations are now moved over to Discord. That's kind of where all the social actions happening. Um, so if you haven't done that, I encourage you to do so on Realm. There's a link there that you can click on. You can download the Discord app. Um, click on the link. Uh, this is where my technological you know, jargon is, I'm lost. So there's the clicking and the, the free account thing and yeah, make it work. So if you have questions, see Jake Elliott there. <laughs> we bought some in-ear equipment that will allow the band members um, to hear individually what they need to hear um, in order to provide quality music uh, in, in this location. So we purchased those in-ear microphones, that, in, that in-ear equipment, um, at a cost of about $600. So just a heads up, keeping everything on the table. We bought those items, and they're still a few weeks out. Is that right? I know they were on back order. Yep, it's in process. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Uh, reminder, young ladies, Bible study uh, meets again this evening or the, late this afternoon, 4.30 to 5.30 here at the church building. And uh, y'all in chapter 2, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Chapter 2. Addie Grace, is that right? Yep, she knows. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, let's see. This coming Friday night is our uh, annual fall men's camp out at the Groves House. That's going to be, uh, what, five or so when, whenever you can come after work end of the day you know come hang out um, bring bring your camping gear if you want to uh, to camp there's plenty of spaces for hammocks and tents um, if you don't have time you're not able to stay the whole night come hang out this is just a great opportunity for the men in the church to fellowship uh, gather together uh, enjoy good time around a campfire so that'll be at the groves uh, Friday evening and then on over into uh, to Saturday morning uh, bring your own food, whatever you want to cook, fix. If you want to bring, you know, McDonald's, that's that's fine too. It's just mainly come, hang out, enjoy a uh, good time. Joey will judge you, and then you can make fun of him. <laughs> so, but it is, it's a it's a wonderful time. We've always enjoyed this uh, every year. So, do encourage you if you're able to, even if you're able to just come for a couple hours, come do that. Uh, all right, let's see. What else we got coming on up? Uh, youth brainstorming meeting is going to be uh, October 10th, 630 uh, here at the church. If you're interested in what is what does the future of Haven Ridge look like in equipping uh, the, our youth age um, to be faithful believers 
in the world, but also equipping parents to be the primary disciple makers. What does that look like as children grow and, be, and begin to get more into that teenage age? We're going to have a brainstorming meeting about that October 10th, 6.30 here at the church building. Uh, October 24th is the baby shower for the, the Wilsons. Again, Wilsons are moving back. They're going to be back in Greenville. They'll be here at Haven Ridge, and they're expecting a child very, very soon. Uh, so we're going to have a baby shower for them here at the church building October 24th. There'll be a potluck meal to follow the service, and we'll have the baby shower. All right, uh, October 30th, we're going to have a fall festival for children. This is, a f- this is a church-wide family, you know, gathering. Everybody gathers. We've done this the last few years. It's always a great opportunity for fellowship. Um, and so that will be also at the Groves. Um, at uh, 3 to three to 6.30, October 30th, there will be uh, slides, uh, maybe a hayride. More details will come, uh, but just want to go ahead and let you know about that. All right, I think that's it. Did I miss anything? No? All right. All right, well, our call to worship this morning comes from the book of Zechariah. Zechariah 1.8. Here, in the beginning of the book of Zechariah, the Lord gives Zechariah a vision. And he says, I saw at night... And behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine with red sorrel and white horses behind him. Let's pray. Father God, as we come gather this morning, this text reminds us of a time in your people's history when they were, there was darkness, there were nations who were at peace amongst each other but were against your people. And so, Father, we're encouraged that, Lord, like those myrtle trees in the depths of a ravine, you guard your people throughout history. As storms come, as nations rage, as things go on in the culture that we don't understand. So, Father, we gather and we worship you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, if you will, please. So this morning we had a little bit of uh, some sound issues during our rehearsal. Um, So if that happens, we'll go acoustic real fast. So you keep going, I'll keep going, and they'll keep acting like they're going. So uh, that's how we'll do that. So let's, uh, let's, let's sing together. sorrows dead in my sin lost without hope with no place to begin a little more mic please your love made a way to let mercy come when death was arrested and my life began chains I'm a prisoner no more my shame was a ransom me faithfully born he came 
Rejoiced as though heaven had lost But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand That's when it was arrested and my life began
the shadows surround me I will not be if you want to come up and join Pastor Austin. All right, good morning. How is everybody this morning? Good? Not good, good, not good. Who's good this morning? All right, you're under duress. (laughs) All right, um, so let me ask you, 
how many of you guys have seen, how many of you seen the movie or any of the movies, because it's been done a bunch of times, have you seen the movie Nottingham, right, and the sheriff of Nottingham's doing work for somebody else, right, remember who it is, it's not the king, the prince, right, the wicked Prince John, right, okay, so Robin Hood, he's robbing from the rich to give to the poor, right, okay, you kind of remember this story, jogging it a little bit. Some of you are like, I've never seen this before, so I'm hoping that this is going to catch, otherwise it'll be a flop. So anyways, that's a great story, okay? But in the background of that story, there's one question. Will, but the question is, is, is the king coming back? Now, you girls have seen the movie, okay? Some of y'all know the story. What happens at the end of the story? Does, does, does King Richard, does the good King Richard return? He does. He does. Yes. Right. And he makes all things right. Okay. Well, that reminds me of a, of a bigger story. Okay. Of another king who left and said he's going to return. Can you, anybody know who, who that is? Yes. Tell me. That's right. That's right. Imaginary sticker for you. Right. Isn't that great? You love imaginary stickers. You can have two. Okay. So Jesus, Jesus told, remember in our book, what's that? Audit. Ah, okay. Maybe I'll see if I can work that one in next week. Okay. Give me a week to work on it. Okay. That's a good thought. So Jesus promised his disciples that he would come again. Okay. Remember, we're talking about the, the end. What happens in the end? Okay. Last week, we talked about what happens when somebody dies. This week, we're going to talk about the promise that Jesus would return. Okay. That Jesus would come back. He met with his disciples in the upper room, and they were very sad right before Jesus died on the cross. Okay, and he told him, he said, look, I'm going to, re- to prepare a place for you. So if it wasn't true, I wouldn't tell you. But I'm going to go and prepare a place for you so that when I return, when I come back a second time, that I'll take you to be wh- where I am. See, the disciples had been promised. Jesus in that conversation in the upper room, he said, look, I'm going to go so the Holy Spirit, the helper can come. He's going to indwell you and anyone else who believes in my name so you'll have my spirit. Okay, give you empowerment to have victory over sin. Okay, to love people in the same way that God loves you because he sent me to die on the cross for your sin. Okay, all of these things, the disciples, they're encouraged by this, but they're very, very sad because Jesus, who's become one of their best friends, is leaving. <coughs> He's going to be gone. So they, they long to have the Holy Spirit in them. They long all, for all these promises that Jesus has promised them. But they want Jesus himself. They want him to rule and to reign. But he's leaving. He says, don't worry, I will come again. You know what else happens? Jesus dies on the cross. He's buried how many days? Ten? Three days. What happens after three days? He rose from the grave. Right. He proclaimed victory over sin and death. Right. And he was seated at the right hand of God. Okay. We open the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we find Jesus returns. Okay, he returns, he returns and he meets with the disciples, okay, gives them the great commission, okay, we talked about that several weeks ago, okay, go into all the nations proclaiming my name, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, okay, and then he does what? Does he go sit on a throne somewhere? No, he's humble, that's right, he's humble, he rises, okay, he ascends and the disciples are standing there, they're watching and you know what happens? Angels appear, and they say, men, what are you doing? Jesus is, is risen, and he will come again in the same way you have seen him leave. 
So you have promises there that Jesus is going to return, that he's going to return again, okay? But his, his return isn't going to be the same. His second coming isn't going to be the same as his first coming, okay? Remember one of the most popular verses in the Bible, probably most of you may know this by heart, okay, was, is, is in John, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, Right? And it says also that God did not, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Okay, that's another way of saying to judge the world. Absolutely. Jesus died on the cross. That's why God sent the son the first time. Okay? He came to carry out what the father sent him to do. Okay, to die on the cross, to be raised from the dead, so that sinners could be saved from sin. Simon, you got it absolutely right. Okay? But his second coming is going to be very different. Okay? Instead of coming... On a rescue mission to save, he's going to come as the king of kings and the lord of lords, okay, to deal with sin, to do away with it, okay? Jesus told his disciples, he says, the father has given me, the son, all authority. So the father does not judge. He gives that to me. He gives that to the son, the authority to judge, okay? His first coming wasn't to judge. It was to save. But when he comes a second time, he comes to judge. Okay, Jesus told many, many stories, many parables and things that talked about the final judgment when he would come. And in one of those, he compares, he compares that judgment to a shepherd dividing the sheep and the goats. Okay? It says that when the Son of Man comes, then he will divide the sheep. Those are his followers. Those are the people who trust in Jesus and believe in him. He'll divide those from the goats. The goats are being those that don't trust in Jesus. Okay, those that aren't following after him. Okay, and this, this should give us encouragement. Okay, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and he said, look, you're going, undergoing a lot of suffering and you're questioning, is God just? Okay, when somebody does something bad to you, do you feel like, man, they should be punished for that, right? Okay, that's, that's a sense of justice. That's something that God's written on our hearts, okay, that we feel like there should be a sense of justice when somebody wrongs us. And Paul knew that, and he wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, look, you are suffering, and do you know who that is? That's Jesus. Good. You guys are good. You know this, okay? Faithful and true, and in his righteousness, he judges and he makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron, with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he is... He has a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That sounds like a mighty king, right? Right? Okay, a mighty king. These children see Jesus by their eye. They have eyes of faith to see Christ, to love him and trust in him. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Dismissed. Thank you. Just want to point out, Austin, that Karis got two imaginary stickers and Simon got none. So, uh, yes, yes. Um, a lot of you don't know, but I, some of you don't know that I work, Austin and I work together, not we're elders, but we work for a construction company, you know, and I'm kind of his underling. So um, this is not a hole digging joke, although I have many. Um, Austin has a way, part of my job with Austin 
is to be a, be a strong support for him. Uh, and sometimes that means maybe I make suggestions. Uh, this is not like a golf caddy with a professional golfer. I'm not that level of suggesting. Okay. But, uh, but as a part of what I'm responsible for is to try to try to keep up with the leads and, and have these ideas. But Austin has a unique ability to reject your dumb idea without making you feel dumb about your idea. Uh, his many, many gifts and I can take a long time to share. But one thing I appreciate about Austin Jowers is the time he takes to to share with the with, with the kids. Any one of us could wing it and get up here and like, ah, I talk for ten minutes about about things. I know enough. Austin reads and prepares, you know. So he he takes that about as seriously as he takes his his turn to preach, you know. Whenever uh, whenever his week comes up. So I, I thank you for that, man. I thank you for your uh, for for your consideration when when all that happens because you're the one that mostly does that. I'm not saying I wing it, I, but I don't prepare like quite like you do. So, thank you for that. That's uh, that, that that means a lot to me, and I hope that means a lot to you as 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 parents. And uh, parents, let me encourage you not to check out during that time because the intention of the children's moment is not to fill all the theological gaps that they may have in their young minds, but to help kind of lay some groundwork for you to build on each week. You know, so we're we're giving you an outline. You just go and build on it. So that kind of takes care of your family worship template. So thanks again for that, Austin. Let's stand together and we'll sing one more song together. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfectly a great high priest
preach. Uh, let's pray. Father God, that is what we will sing at the end of time. Behold him there, the risen lamb. The, the lamb, as Revelation says, who was standing as if slain. And Father, there will be people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation who's there, unified not by ethnicity, not by skin color, not by degrees of suffering, but Father, through the pure grace that was shed on them through Jesus Christ, that we will all point to Jesus and say, he's the only reason that I'm here. The stories we tell will center around his mercy and his grace. So, Father, this is why we go. This is why we share the gospel. This is why we're passionate about Jesus. So, Father, whether we're here locally in Greer, in Greenville, or whether our work takes us to Florida or Alabama or New York, wherever, Father, may we be faithful to represent Jesus wherever you have us, whatever context we live in. Father, for our missionaries who are overseas, Father, because we can't all go. You're not, we're not all called to go, but some are. Father, where you've placed that responsibility on them, Father, may it burn white hot so that they can do nothing else. Their soul is not, will not rest until they're there, wherever you have called them to, to be faithful, to give the gospel to those who need it. For as your word has said in the Old Testament, you have many people in this city. And such is the case with every ethnic linguisto group that, is, that exists on this planet. But you say you have people there. So, Father, our missionaries that we support in Ireland, in Bangladesh, in China. We know many, many uh, of our church family individually support missionaries in other countries, Father. Would you... Would you seal them, Father, for the work that you have? Would you keep them faithful to the gospel? And Lord, when suffering comes, when struggle comes, whether that's from external sources or whether that's battle within, maybe it's depression, maybe it's, maybe it's sickness, maybe it's doubt, Father, would your spirit strengthen them? 
their eyes turn toward heaven, where they see Christ, you pull back the veil, they would see Jesus. They would run hard the race that's before them to keep them faithful. Would you do the same with us here until you come? So, Father, as, as Alan comes to bring your word, Father, would you speak to us, do business with our hearts where we need it so that we might all be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. You can turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 15. We'll finish that section, 15 through verse 29. So whether you're opening, turning, scrolling, or however you're going to get there, go ahead and get there. We'll be looking at those, at those texts today. Paul brings up Abraham a good bit uh, in the book of Galatians. And uh, I find myself feeling a bit like Abraham as in, in the sense that Abraham was sought out, plucked out of paganism and set on a task that he in and of himself had no business doing, right? I mean, God equipped him, God made him worthy through God's electing, through God's calling of him to be the father of many nations and to do the task that Abraham was tasked to do. So I'm sure Austin can agree with this, but I definitely feel a bit like Abraham in the sense that I really have no business as a mere man standing up here. And this is not a false humility. This is not an attempt to do this, but I have a reason for saying this. I really have no business being a preacher of the Word of God, not because there's this gross sin in my life or because I leave here and I go and I beat my children. I don't mean that. Just because it's the Word of God and I'm a man. You know, it's, it's the infallible, perfect Word of God and I'm an imperfect you know, uh, it's the infallible word of God, and I'm a fallible man. Sorry. So y- y- you get the idea, right? So that's how I feel sometimes, and I, I sometimes I feel like that more than others, and this was a week that approaching the text where I really felt that way because there's some language, at least in the English, that's just really hard to work through. So I'm going to read this section for you and let you wrestle and chew on the same things that I had to chew on, and uh, and you can just wait and see how we work through these things together. So Galatians chapter 3, this was a rich study for me this week. I wish I had another week to work through it. Um, Let me go ahead and apologize to my lovely theonomist in the room today. Um, uh, I'm not going to preach anything that's going to upset you, I promise you that, but we're going to talk a lot about the law. I'm not I'm not at theonomy at this point in time, so I'm not going to preach like I'm at theonomy. So an economy of grace, uh, which you normally show me, would be would be appreciated. So, um, but a part of our responsibility as those who are charged with the task to divide the Word of God is to not avoid things just because they're difficult, not to avoid things just because maybe we feel like we still struggle and are still seeking clarity in some things. Um, we're always students of the Bible. We're always seeking clarity. And what I believe today, you know, hopefully, you know, not on first-tier issues for sure, but second-tier issues, I may not believe tomorrow or five years later from today when I listen to this sermon, I may say, oh, well, that was dumb. You know, so we'll see, right? So we'll see where that goes. So, but my charge is to back up what I say and to prove that I have a rationale from which I get my, my thoughts. So, Here we go, Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, 
Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. To remember the context, Paul is referring back again to a covenant made with Israel or made with Abraham, okay, initially, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. Not just Abraham, but to Abraham and his offspring, which we understand would be you know, uh, uh, many. There would be a great multitude. He says, your offspring will be like the sands on the seashore. You know, so we're talking a lot of people who were the recipients of this promise, okay? And so he's referring back to that, and he's doing so because the church in Galatia, these Gentile believers, had left the one who had called them, or were leaving the one who had called them, therefore leaving a true gospel, pursuing a false gospel, the false gospel being a gospel of works, a gospel of circumcision, which was directly connected to the law, specifically the Mosaic law. So there's a little bit of a context. So Paul's trying to squash that bug very quickly. And Paul labors both before this and throughout today's, uh, today's sermon, today's text, he labors to show that Here's what the law is. Here's what the law is for. Here's how you can understand the law better in view of or with regards to your relationship to Christ and to his or to God and to his covenant. So here we go. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified or established. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Notice that. That's very interesting that Paul would use that language. Or your translation might say seed. Does anyone have a translation that says seed instead of offspring? Good, good. I think that's a fantastic translation, at least with that word. So to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. Now here's where it gets interesting, referring to one and not to your offspring and to I'm sorry and to your offspring who is Christ and this is what I mean Paul says the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God in other words the covenant was made 430 years after Genesis 15 after Genesis 12 after Genesis 17 then you have this law the law of Moses that is given to Moses at Sinai. So 430 years. So this is what Paul's saying. He's saying 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. God had established a covenant 430 years previous to the law as to make, so as to make the promise void. He says, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why then the law, Paul asks? If the law had nothing to do with your righteousness, if the law had nothing to do with your salvation, if he has labored so far to explain to them, listen, it's not about law. You know, it's not about law. This law did not nullify, did not nullify, did not annul, did not, it did not eradicate in any way God's covenant. God's covenant was established. You can't break that. He said, so why the law? Because you can't deny the fact that the law is there. You can't deny the fact that it's written throughout the pages of Scripture. You can't deny the fact that there's a lot of emphasis placed on it, even by Paul himself. So why then the law, he said, verse 19, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. His intermediary. His name is Moses. Now an intermediary implies more than one. 
but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that by the, by the, so that, sorry, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive and under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith, that now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, the heavy application of this sermon will come in next week's sermon. We'll get into what this all means as far as being heirs and Abraham's offspring and what the blessings are that come from that. So today we'll be giving you a lot of information to work through with regards to three things, with regards to God's covenant, will be with regards to God's law, and with regards slightly in God's blessing that comes from these things. The objective is to better understand the relationship between God's covenant and God's law. Now, now we're all thoroughly confused by what Paul wrote there. Let's, uh, let's kind of work through this and try to dissect some of these things. Last week I told you that the sermon was low-hanging fruit. And what's interesting is last week was sometimes a preacher gets up and they preach and uh, they, they, they feel great about it, and sometimes they feel awful about it. Last week was one of those times that I just felt terrible, felt like I couldn't connect cognitively in my own mind, felt like I was losing you the whole time. But interestingly, by God's grace, it was last week that I received the most affirmation I've ever received from a sermon. And that just reminded me that, you know, it's just a good way for God to humble me, you know. So uh, if I feel great after today, you know, I probably shouldn't. If I feel terrible today, I should probably be thankful that maybe it, it landed well. So we'll see how I feel, right? So, so let's talk about the covenant because that's where Paul begins this little section. He says, let me give a human example. He's trying to explain something so they could understand with regards to the covenant. So what covenant specifically? Again, God's covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, that whole section there, the promise that God made to Abraham is being fulfilled here. He's talking about to these Gentiles. They are recipients of that promise. They are a part of that promise. They are benefiting from that promise as they have been grafted in by justification through faith alone. And so this is what Paul's trying to argue to them. Hey, you are a part of this. You are blessed. You are, as he would say, Abraham's offspring by faith. And so you are recipients, as Ephesians says, to the covenants of promise. And let me talk for a minute about covenant. This is not that difficult. We understand what a covenant is. A covenant is a promise. A covenant is a contract, all right? So it's pretty simple. God has made this covenant. God has made a promise. God doesn't break his promises. If he does so, it would be to deny himself, and Christianity would crumble or implode on itself if God were to do those things. So we understand that covenants that God makes cannot be broken. You and I break covenants all the time. We say, yes, yes, I'll do a thing. We don't do a thing. We break covenants. We break promises. God does not, and that is a good thing. 
but he's speaking in human terms saying, let me explain to you so you can understand a little bit better about this kind of transaction or this covenant that was made. You and I understand in terms of leaving someone an inheritance, okay, because there's inheritance-type language throughout the Scriptures with regards to what we get as the offspring of Abraham, what we get with that blessing, with that promise, with all those things, with being in Christ. Ephesians 1 is all about it. In Christ, you get this. In Christ, you have this. In Christ, you have that. So we benefit from all these things, from the covenant-keeping God. But Paul uses this earthly example. If I go and we write a last will and testament, then what happens is that becomes binding or prorated once I pass or once Sarah passes. If we say, okay, here's my will and testament. At the part of my death, at the time of my death, I want my children to get this, all right? I want my children to have this. I want, you know, or if I go, I want my wife to have this, you know. So we, so we write out a last will and testament. We write out a covenant. We write out a contract saying, hey, here it is. And that becomes established or ratified at the point of my death. But Jews also had a different way of covenanting, and this is what they would understand. It was called the, uh, I don't want to mess up the word, uh, it was called the, well, I have moved things around, so here we go. So it is called the uh, Metanat Bari, all right, I, I can't, I don't, I don't know how that's really pronounced, but Metanat Bari, which is a per, when a person could make an irrevocable covenant, an irrevocable testament that was put in place before their death. Okay, so we're used to last will and testament taking place after we pass, right? But here the Jews understood a testament or a, an agreement or a covenant called the Metanet Bari, which a person could make an irrevocable covenant or a will and testament to another prior to death. In this case, God, since he cannot die, would have made a testament that is analogous to the Metaret, Metanet Bari. So God's covenant was not based on his death, God the Father's covenant, was not based on his death. As a matter of fact, you could easily say that it was based on Christ's death because the whole covenant was rooted in Christ, which I'll get to in a minute. I just didn't want to say too much and show all my cards. But Paul is telling the Galatians here that their blessings are the blessings of Abraham, which are rooted in the unbreakable promises to Abraham, but not just to Abraham, but also with regards to Christ and with regards to his offspring. Okay, so you have this covenant that is made. He explains it in human terms so they can understand, okay, okay, it, it, it's, it's, this covenant is here now. You know, when God made this, it was there. I mean, God's established this. These things are happening. You know, they made it to a promised land because you get into land type language. Obviously, they made it to the land of Canaan when we're talking about the children of Israel. So these things are being fulfilled, and this is prior to Christ dying. But more on that in just a little bit. But not to confuse the issue, but to make the point that this covenant is binding because God has made this covenant and he's using human terms to help them understand. But another thing about the covenant I want you to understand is that it doesn't break because of who God is. Not just the nature of the covenant, but the nature of God himself. Right? God, and, I, and I've said that already, if God starts breaking promises, then Christianity collapses on itself. I mean, our very hope is rooted in promises, right? I mean, you were not there to see Christ raised from the dead, you know, we were promised that he, it would happen, and we look back to the promises that it did happen. We look back at what God has given us in his word and say, this is what God says. He said, this is what's happened. 
And so we're, we're, we're trusting God at his word. We're trusting that this is not false, but that this is actually true, even though we weren't there. And all of our eggs are in that basket. All of our hope is there. In that Christ would die, he would be perfect, he would be sinless, that he was the son of God, in him dwells the fullness of deity and bodily form, that Christ would be all that he needed to be in order to actually atone for sin. And then he does that, and he completes it by raising on the third day. And now he's right-handed the Father, all that fun stuff, right? So we believe all of those things, and that's what our hope is centered on. Why? Because of the nature of God, because we can trust God. Where do we get God's word? From God himself. It would be a contradiction to God himself if he starts breaking promises. It's not in his nature to lie. The scripture tells us God cannot do what? He cannot lie. We know that he can't sin, but it specifically says he cannot lie. So to break a promise would be to have a lying God, and then Christianity collapses on itself. You can't trust the word. You know, you don't have hope. You know, you might as well find something else to put your hope in because it surely isn't the word of God and not God himself if he's a covenant breaker. It's not his nature. I've used the example before of a lion that has the mechanics to pick an apple, cup an apple, and eat an apple from its paw. But a lion doesn't do that because it's not in the lion's nature. You don't see animals acting contrary to their nature. A shark is not going to come up to you and want his uh, head to be pet by putting his nose and nuzzling up to you. It's not in the shark's nature. If his nose is close to you, it's probably to take a piece of you, right? It's just not in a shark's nature. So don't hear me saying, hey, my pastor said that, uh, you know, the shark might be friendly. And so it's not in the shark's nature to do those things, just that it's not in God's nature to break his promise. So that's one reason that that's one reason that, that, that Paul appeals to a covenant. He appeals to a promise because these things cannot be broken, not just because of the nature of a covenant, but the nature of who, but the nature of God, who God is. But also it doesn't break, a covenant doesn't break because of what God does. And simply put, God seals it. God doesn't just make it, but he seals it. You know, there's a, there's a promise to us. There's a guarantee to us. If we become followers of Jesus, you know, Paul writes about this. He says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, right? You know, that's something that God does. You know, God seals us with the Holy Spirit of promise, ensuring the perseverance of the saints, ensuring salvation. The reason I believed in a, uh, some people don't like the term, a once saved, always saved. I get it. And I get some of the baggage that comes with that. But conceptually, I absolutely believe that those whom God has truly regenerated, that he does keep them because the Bible has keeping language. Because uh, if I could lose my salvation, to quote, to quote John MacArthur, I would. Uh, and he seals us. And that sealing language means it is sealed not to be opened. It is permanent. It is sealed. It is closed sealing you and keeping you and protecting you and keeping you in him. So the covenant doesn't break, not just because of the nature of covenants, not just because of the nature of God, but because of what God does when he makes a covenant. He seals us. He secures it. He holds it. He maintains it. But here's what's interesting. Is that there is a Christological component to this covenant. I don't know about you, but for a long time, when I would read Genesis, when I would read 12, 15, 17, I wasn't so much thinking about Jesus. I mean, because Jesus hadn't come yet. Jesus was very much alive. Jesus was very much there when the covenant was given. Jesus was very much there when the law was given. Uh, Jesus 100% affirms every jot and tittle of the law itself, right? 
And so Jesus is there. So there's no question as to Jesus and his uh, uh, posture or position towards the law or towards these covenant. He's there. But I didn't arrive at Genesis 12, 15, and 17 thinking about Jesus necessarily for the longest time. I just thought, well, God has made his promise. They, they trusted in God's promise. They didn't know the name Jesus. They didn't know who the seed would be, the seed of the woman. They didn't know. They just knew that there would be something. They knew that there would be someone, that there was going to be a great hope. And so they just trusted God. And I think all those things are true. But when I get to Genesis 12, 15, and 17 for the longest time, I didn't immediately think of the Christological, the Christ component within the covenant. And that's exactly where Paul goes here. So listen to this. Again, he says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds it once it has been established. Now, the promises were made to Abraham, I told you where those come from, and to his offspring or to his seed. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. It is interesting that Paul would choose to write in a few short phrases what he wrote here. He, he, he didn't have to clarify himself. Now, to the promises were made to Abram, to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings. I mean, Paul's being very intentional with his language here. You know, because if we're, we're reading that, knowing the New Testament, if you're a Jew or if you're, well, especially if you're a Jew, these Gentiles may not have known those things or not, but consider, consider what we know reading. Con- consider how the word applies to us and what we take from the word. We read this. If he just would have left it at, you know, Abraham to his offspring, and he never made these little comments about it does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but to one, we might roll right on and say, oh, this is, oh, this is you know, the... The nations, this is, you know, all, all of Abraham's offspring. This is all the children of God because that's how it's represented all throughout Scripture. But here it's different. Paul wants to emphasize that there's a Christological component in this covenant. And when he says, referring to men, not referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, he's talking about Jesus. He's making it very clear that the root of their hope in this covenant is in what Christ would do. He's pointing them to that. And it makes sense because this whole letter has been leaning on justification by faith alone in and through Christ alone. So in order for you to sit there and really kind of get this, you've got to get it with the whole package. You've got to consider what's been written in 1 and 2 to help this kind of come into frame a little bit more clearly for you. So he's combating circumcision. He's combating a covenant of works. He's combating these things. He's combating the law to a degree. And he's saying, listen, this is about the covenant, which was established 430 years by the law. And guess what? Abraham believed and it was considered righteous. He's already said that. It wasn't because Abraham kept the law. The law wasn't even there. So how do you account for these things? Well, he's starting to explain it now. Things that maybe you see, but imagine what they're seeing for the first time. And for many of you, probably for the first time sitting in this room, that Christ is the root component that, that, that I guess, fills out the hope that is the covenant that God has made with us. It's interesting because this word for seed, the Greek word is sperma, and so he uses that word, and it's called a collective noun which you don't have to add an S to offspring to make it plural. 
So it can be taken, this word sperma, it can be taken as singular or plural. But being a collective noun, it's just interesting because Paul doesn't, he, the, the commentator, the linguist, they're making the point, and Paul's making the point to show that I'm being intentionally singular in the way that I say this. He's laboring to show the singularity in what he's saying. Clearly, we know that God's promises to Abraham and to his descendants. Genesis twenty-two seventeen. listen to this. I will surely bless you, God says, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So there we see a plurality. There we see, you know, uh, uh, and, and, you know a number that really can't be counted of those that will benefit from this promise, from this covenant. Paul would have known. He would have known this about this word seed. But here's the important question. Why stress the singular when the promise was to a multitude? Because it's in Christ. This is what Paul's saying. So if you're ever reading this or if you've read this, you're like, this is kind of convoluted the way that he talks. You know, uh, maybe you're much smarter than me and you connected with it very quickly, you know, but, but I've read this so many times in my life and I'm like, eh, just keep reading. I don't really fully understand. I don't want to open up a commentary and spend hours and hours kind of studying through this. Trust me, there are volumes written on this. I've read several hours worth of them to try to understand. I'm giving you the cliff notes and knowing that Christ is the center of this covenant is the answer that we arrive at. That's where the blessings are found. The promise of which the Jews and the Gentiles are enjoying is rooted in Christ. The, the, all the hope of those who were under the old covenant, those who never lived to see Christ, those who never lived in this life to see Christ crucified, risen, and reigning. You say, well, what about them? They're saved the same way. We've mentioned that already for several weeks. They're saved the same way, justification by faith. And Christ is the root of their salvation as well. Was it appropriated in the exact same way on our end? No. We read the scripture that says, Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised from the dead and you will be saved. We do that. Yes, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's what we profess. They didn't profess that way. But their faith was the same and the righteousness of Jesus was what was applied to the Old Testament saints just as sure as his righteousness is applied to us. They looked forward, we look back. It was applied for them from the future, and, it's, and, and then it's applied, if you want to say it this way, it's applied on us or to us from the past. You meet somebody today, you share the gospel with them, they trust Jesus. What Jesus did then is then applied to them now. That righteousness is imputed to them. We've already discussed that in chapter 2. And now we're seeing how these things can kind of work. So it's not New Testament saints. They have the righteousness of Jesus. Old Testament saints, you know, God gave them some special, some special grace. It's all the same. It's all justification by faith alone. That's the point of Galatians. That's what Paul's laboring to teach them. And again, to, to have the whole context in frame, that's what he's combating because those who came in from James, those who came in saying something else are pulling them away from that truth and trying to insert something that's false. And this is not new language to us. You know, when we start piecing things together, we see that 
all these things, all the blessings, all of this is rooted in Jesus, whether it was looking forward to what Jesus would do or looking back at what Jesus has done. Listen to what Paul says. I mean, he had a masterful understanding of law and covenant and all of these things. Just listen to some of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us adoption to adoption as sons through whom? Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, what? In him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Over and over and over again, it's in him. And all that's doing is following and being consistent with a pattern since the very beginning. All things are in Jesus. All hope is in Jesus. Old, new covenant, all things are in Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. See, the Bible is one big narrative. For us to lay aside the Old Testament, which serves as a bridge to the new, is detrimental. Is detrimental. I couldn't stand it when Andy Stanley tried to wax eloquent saying we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. That's dumb. It's just dumb because the Old Testament paves the way. What do you think the biblical authors were leaning on when they were writing it, even though under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're leaning on the Old Testament text. For us to disregard that and say, well, that's, that's old, that's, you know, work on understanding how the Bible works a little more before you plan to unhitch anything from the Bible. So it's all in Christ. It always has been. I mean, that's, that is Paul's point here. You know, friends and family, this is, this is Paul's point. He says, it does not say an offspring's. As, as you've heard with these covenants for years, that Abraham and his descendants, Abraham and all those that will be blessed, those who are innumerable, he, he, he mixes it up. He says, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And it makes sense because Christ is there because Abraham was chosen. And Christ comes from that line. So it all starts to kind of come into focus and come into frame. We benefit from the finished work of Jesus. It is in Christ that we have life in his accomplished work. For those before Christ, it is under the reality of what would be his finished work that serves as the root of hope. You remember when Isaiah said, by his stripes we are healed? Now someone could back up and say, well, that's just the language that he used. By his stripes we are healed. As in, we're going to be healed by his stripes. But that's not the tense that was used in that text. And I've shared this with you before. I'm going to share it again. It's a prophetic perfect. Isaiah is speaking in such a way, using under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a tense in language to show that what Christ was going to do hundreds of years has immediate effect for those who believe. Again, they didn't put on the Lord Jesus Christ as you and I know that. They were not called Christians, which term was not used until Acts. All right? But they were in Christ because the only way that they could benefit from that covenant is through Christ because he was 
the root of that covenant. I don't know if you've ever thought that way. If you're late to the table like me, welcome. (laughs) But it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Listen, I want to share this from one commentator, and we'll move right on. The physical descendants of Abraham inherited the physical land of Canaan. I'm just showing that God does keep his promises. He's not a promise uh, promise breaker according to God's promise. But even Abraham, this commentator says, already knew that there was more to this promise than appeared on the surface. The promised country on earth was a type of the better country, the heavenly country reserved for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, William Hendrickson. And so we see the covenant And now we see the law. So let me share some things about the law. And I will commit to this. Well, let me share some things about the law. We'll just see where we get. Where we get. Look at verse 19. I don't want to rush through this. So if we finish, we finish. If not, it'll be a two-parter. You know, I love those. So, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So Paul asks this question, and I think it's very relevant. Why the law? After he's already said all these things about a covenant, after he said, hey, it's not about the law, it's not about the law, but the reality is the law was given. So the law has some impact, some significance. So why the law? Why the law? It can be tricky. The law can be a tricky thing. I've had many conversations recently from people, people here where they're still trying to work through, and I'm still trying to work through how the law, how the law works, how it applies, what it means now. I mean, there's a lot of fun conversations that, uh, that I've had lately with people about things with regards to the law. But know a few things that I think all of us will agree with, okay? I'm not here to offend you theonomists yet. So this is what we can all agree with. And that is that the law can be tricky. And here's what I mean. The law, when it's referred to, can be referred to the entire Old Testament. The law, when it is referred to, it can be referred to as the Mosaic law. When the law is referred to, it can be referred to um, as, as the Torah or the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. And the different usage is used all throughout, especially Paul's writing. I encourage you to read Romans. I said this a few weeks ago. Go to Romans. Read Romans in tandem with Galatians. I've leaned on Romans a lot as I study this because there's so many comments that are made about the law. Galatians is basically a concise or condensed version of the letter to the Romans. Romans is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful letter. And so is Galatians. So I would encourage you in that way. So I'm going to lean on Romans some here. But the law can refer to the entire Old Testament, to the Mosaic law, or to the Pentateuch, Torah, or the first five books of the Bible. I'm going to argue, and I think all of you would agree, that Paul refers to the law as the Mosaic law. I don't believe that Paul is referring to the entire Old Testament. I don't believe that Paul is referring to the Torah. I think he's referring to the Mosaic law because... At the beginning, he's talking about circumcision and things like that, which are, uh, you know, which, which they would try to adhere to. So I think, he's, I think he's talking about the Mosaic law. And to understand the Mosaic law, let me say this, and not everybody, everybody might not agree with me here. And I've wrestled through this for a while, and I have a rationale for this. I do believe in a tripartite division of the law. This is common 
amongst evangelicals, by the way. I'm not some, some crazy kook up here, right? What I mean by that is I believe that the law, even though we have a law, we have one law, it can be recognized pretty clearly as you have a civil or judicial portion of the law. You have a, what are you doing back there, Matt Grennan? There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a judicial part of the law. There's a uh, moral aspect of the law. There's a dietary portion of the law. And you say, where do you get that exactly? Well, when you look through the Old Testament, when you start working through Deuteronomy, when you start working through Leviticus and things of that nature, you see over 600 commands, 600 rules 600 laws that were given specifically to the children of Israel that they had to adhere to. Without knowing it, you've probably talked about it before. You've probably heard people in conversations. One person's mad at another person because they have a tattoo. And that person responds and says, well, do you eat shellfish? You know, so you, these things happen because, you know, when you start saying, hey, of this, of, you know, out of the 600 and something laws, I'm going to get onto you about this one, not realizing, not realizing that that applied specifically to a certain people for a certain time. You know, your, your, your mixed threaded clothing, which all of us pr- probably have on today. I mean, there's a lot of these laws that we don't, adhere to at all, and rightly so. You know, there's a lot of dietary things that we don't adhere to, and rightly so, because they were given to a specific people for a specific reason for a specific time. It had parameters on it. And so I think that it's clearly seen that there's divisions there. And I think when Jesus came on the scene and he says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I came to fulfill those things. I think it makes sense that even Jesus is speaking towards a Mosaic law. And here's why I would say this, because it would not make sense for Jesus to say, I've come to abolish the law, meaning the whole Old Testament, because in the, and he says, and the prophets, because in the Old Testament, you have the prophets. So why would he say, I've come to abolish the entire Old Testament? Or why would I come to abolish, uh, abolish the Torah or the Pentateuch? I believe that when Jesus says this, he again is referring to the Mosaic law. Now, there are nuances to that as far as what abolish means or what fulfill means. We're not in Matthew 5 today, folks, so you'll just have to wonder for a while, okay? So, Paul uses this as the Mosaic law. This is a law that they're under. This is the law that is the tutor, that is the guardian, that is the taskmaster, that is the disciplinarian. I want to get to that today, and hopefully I can. So that's, that's what he's saying. So why the law? And this is going to be quick. I'm going to kind of rapid fire these things. I really think I can finish in 10 minutes. This is rapid fire because of the things that I've made. Go ahead, time me, Joey. That's fine. I got to go to Atlanta, so I've got I to finish sometime. So why the law? Here's some things that I would say. And most of these things are from this text. Others are drawn from Romans, but I want to kind of make these arguments. I want to make this appeal. Why the law, Paul says. It was added because of a transgression. I would say, first of all, the law was an addition to God's covenant, not a replacement for it. The law was an addition to God's covenant, not a replacement for it. That's his argument. He's saying, listen, the covenant was given 430 years later. The law is given. It does not annul the covenant. It does not eradicate the covenant. So it's got to be there for a reason. They've got to be there in harmony somehow. God didn't give something that was going to clash with the covenants. Paul says later, these things were given. Are they contrary to one another? Certainly not, he says, I think in 21 or 22. We'll get there in a second. So the law was an addition to God's covenant, not a replacement for it. It was applied to and meant to govern God's people, people who were a part of God's covenant. It's more than that. But consider the covenant and consider who the law, to whom the law was given. 
And so it was a guardian. More on that later. I think secondly, the law was added with temporal parameters. Temporal parameters. And here's why. It says it twice, but I'll just show you once. Why then the law, verse 19, it was added because of transgressions. When? Until. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it says that again later. So I think it had certain parameters. And I think a clear way to understand that, first of all, who is the offspring? Obviously, it's Jesus at the root. But who are the recipients? Who are the descendants? All those who are children of faith. The law revealed our... Getting ahead of myself. The law was given here at Sinai. And then you've got the, the, the end parameter at Calvary. So Sinai to Calvary is I would say that it's, it's parameters because Jesus comes and then with Calvary you have Jesus saying, I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill. Now it's nuanced and there's more to that. And maybe we'll get into that uh, in, in coming weeks because there's a lot more law talk. I'm trying to pace myself and build a more of a cumulative understanding here. Thirdly, the law was added for revelation, not restoration. The law was never meant to redeem you. It was never meant to redeem me. It was never meant to redeem the children of Israel. It was revelatory in its intent. It was never meant to redeem us. Listen to this. The law revealed our needs. It revealed our sinfulness. Romans 3.20. Listen to this. It is knowledge of sin that comes through what? Through the law. So there's a revelatory aspect of the law when God gave the the Mosaic law. Listen to this. This is a little more difficult to work through. Romans 5.20. The law was added so that sin might increase. What do you do with that? <laughs> the law was added so that sin might increase. There are those that would say the law was given so that, so that you might run rampant. You know, there are two views here, Jake Hillett, I've decided to share them. Uh, there's a preventative and a provocative view when it comes to looking at verse, uh, f- uh, verse 20 of chapter 5 of Romans. The law was added so that sin might increase. Martin Luther, in fact, held to a provocative view. He held to both, actually. He said that what happens is God gives his law, and much like children who walk beside an apple orchard, and there's no sign that says do not pick the apples, they probably leave it alone. But the moment you put a rule there, a law there, what happens with these children is they're like, well, now we're going to pick some apples. So what it does is it provokes you to sin. Well, there's major issues with that because are we saying that God puts something in place to encourage sin? Absolutely not. Paul even deals with that. Does sin increase so that grace, is there sin so that grace may increase? He says, may it never be. We don't don't sin just to get grace. That's not an excuse to sin. Hey, the more I sin, the more grace I get, the more God's glorified. Paul says, that's wrong. Licentiousness is not the way to go. It never was. So how do you understand the law was added so that sin might increase? I don't hold to a provocative view. I hold to a preventative view. I think the law works in this way, I think it's like putting an image of yourself under a magnifying glass or a microscope. And you might see things on your skin that you did not otherwise see. That always been there. Putting it under that didn't create anything new. It just showed what was already there, but otherwise you probably didn't realize So I think when it says that the law was added so that sin might increase, it means that our awareness, our understanding, our perspective changes. We see because the law as a schoolmaster, as a custodian, as a tutor, as a guardian, it shows us how deep the rabbit hole goes. It shows us how entrenched we really are in our sin. Just imagine, you're ignorant of 
of, of you're young and you're ignorant of all the laws and all these things, and someone comes up who's a representative of South Carolina, a legislator, whatever, and says, did you know that it's illegal to spit on the street in South Carolina? Did you know that it's illegal to do this? Did you know that it's illegal to do that? And you're like, I had no clue. What they're doing is they're just saying, here's the law. It's always been here. Here it is. Now you're aware. So sin increases. Not that your sinfulness increases, but that which was there becomes known. Does that make sense, what I'm, what I'm trying to say? That's preventative, and I think that's the way that we understand Romans 5. 20. And if you go on to read Romans 5.21, I think it further, uh, it further explains uh, what that says. But for time's sake, I'll let you read that. The law shows us our sin. It shows us sinfulness. It shows us our guilt. But also the law was added. Um, well, I said that the law was added for prevention, not provocation. Another one is the law was added to condemn those outside of faith in God. Listen to verse 22. Now, before they, for faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed, so that the law was a guardian until Christ came. The scripture, it says the scripture, but we know that encapsulated in scripture is the law of God. Imprisoned everything under sin until faith came, until you are regenerated until you have faith in Jesus, until justification by faith happens in your life. You are imprisoned. You are enslaved is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I was imprisoned. I was enslaved. Everyone imprisoned. Everyone enslaved until it was faith, the gift to be consistent with Ephesians, to be consistent with Paul's writing because he was very consistent, the gift given Guess who the gift is given to? All who believe, whether it's Abraham or whether it's the last person to come to Christ on this earth, it's faith as a gift that's given. And until that happens, the law, whether it was the law thousands of years ago or whether it's us looking at a law now, the law of God now, the law of Christ, whatever, it points to us and shows us that we're not right until faith. So again, Paul's saying, listen, you're not now where you were. Where you were was imprisoned until justification by faith. He's trying to let them see the beauty of faith, the beauty of grace, the beauty of God as the active agent applying faith and giving that to you. The law was added to draw men to Christ. I have these final two comments with the law and then a final note on blessing. The law was added to draw men to Christ. The ESV says a guardian, which tends to make it sound a little softer than intended. And so the law became our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25, but now the faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian, but now we're under Christ. So it uses guardian twice. I don't believe that guardian is the best translation, and here's why as I've studied through these things. There's a lot of translations. English, there's tutor, there's schoolmaster, there's guardian, there's custodian, and all of these things. You hear guardian, you think something good. You know, uh, uh, with foster care, we have a guardian ad litem who, aside from the foster parents, is said to have the best interest at heart and in mind for that child, guardian ad litem. We think of guardian angels. These all have positive connotations. This word here does not have a positive connotation. The law has many positive connotations. Right here is not the way that Paul uses it. The word is pedagogos. Clear English equivalent to this Greek word, or probably the closest that it comes to, is a disciplinarian. A disciplinarian. The word is 
pedagogos. You're probably familiar with their pedagogy. The historical meaning and the reason Paul would use this word to really kind of help us understand the weight of this. Historically speaking, in ancient Greece, a wealthy family would do this. They would take their child. When the child was born, they would immediately take their child and give the child to a wet nurse. The wet nurse would take care of that child for the first two years of that child's life, after which the child would then go to a nanny until that child was about six years old. Again, the wealthy could afford to do this. Now, yeah, it brings up questions about how involved are you in your child's life, but that's just not the way they did things. So a nanny would take care of a child until about six years old. After six years old, a child would, been, would then go to a pedagogos, a pedagogue, a disciplinarian, or a schoolmaster, a custodian, or some of those that you might prefer. And this is what the job entailed. This teacher would spend years around the clock with this pupil, with this student, teaching them the ways of life, teaching them cultural normatives, teaching them societal normatives just so that they aren't a drag in society, okay? Helping them understand these things, helping them understand posture, how to speak to someone, conversation skills, all of these things, just helping them understand. I mean, the sky was the limits. I mean, they really played a big role in this child's life. But one way that they got results was through corporal punishment. They got results through their notorious methods by inflicting hardship, by inflicting pain on the student. History reports that there were a number of pedagogues who would take kids to executioners because they wouldn't learn or they wouldn't grasp the concepts or maybe they were disorderly in their behavior. There's, there's notes of students who have reported through history of, of, the, the, of their relationship and their experience with these pedagogues, and it was overwhelmingly negative because of the heavy hand at which these pedagogues would rule. The dominating image of the pedagogue was a harsh disciplinarian who often resorted to physical force and corporal punishment to keep children in line. Students were typically afraid of their pedagogues. And interestingly, this is how Paul refers to the law here. And we start to see why he uses words like, you were enslaved, you were imprisoned. And this wasn't some kind of neutral position that they were in. It was meant to expose you to the reality that you are not free. That you are imprisoned. That you are a slave. That's why Paul said, that's why, that's why the scripture says, for, you know, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. For Christ will set you free. And if you are free, you are free. What? Indeed, you are free. Why? Free from what? The condemnation of your sin, the condemnation that the law brings on your life because it exposes you to your sin. This is why Paul said things like, to the law I've died, because that's what the law does. The law provided the brutal and inescapable reality that we are truly enslaved to our sin and that our hope will never be in keeping the law. I think the law was also added finally to have continued relevance in the life of a believer. Now, this is where it's nuanced, and this is where you can have a lot of conversations, but I want to make a generalized, safe statement because we don't have time, and I don't have the intellect right now to walk through all of these things in detail. You say, Alan, but you said the law was temporal. It had temporal parameters. Yeah, I say the Mosaic law does, but God's morality does not. 
Romans 6.14 very interestingly says, you are no longer under the law but under grace. But we read Romans 3.31 that says, do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. We uphold the law. How do you, how do you reason? How do you make sense and reconcile these realities from Scripture? In God's moral law, we see God's morality. God does not change, therefore, neither does his moral expectations. And I think we would do well to first and foremost go to Jesus and what he had to say with regards to the law. And one of those things he said is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This encapsulates every bit of the morality of God. Every bit of what's expected for us in a, in a summarized, concise statement, I'll say that, with God's morality. And I would argue that what Jesus has said, and that being the law of Christ, I would say that the law of Christ is not contrary to God's moral law, but it is an expression of God's moral law. Jesus was there with God when the law was given. Jesus absolutely affirmed it. Jesus and the Father were in full agreement. So when it comes to the law of Christ, Galatians 6, we go to what Jesus has to say. And what he has to say in reference to all of those things, not only is it to fulfill and not abolish, but it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. It's with all your heart, soul, and mind. This brings us in for a close. The last thing Paul says, verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And you are Christ's. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs to the covenants of promise. So Paul brings it back to this hope. He brings it back to this promise. He says, you're no longer under a guardian. You're no longer under a disciplinarian. You're no longer under, under a pedagogos. You're no longer separated, estranged from the commonwealth of Israel, stranger to the covenants of promise, Ephesians 2, but you're unified and made as one in Jesus. And not just that, but he says you're heirs according to promise. And it's all rooted in Christ. Everything, all of it, always has been. Some people say that you can't find Christ in the Old Testament, which is ridiculous. (laughs) He's there at the very beginning and he's throughout. And one way that we see him, although maybe a bit unconventionally, is in the covenant. Because we know that the covenant, the hope of the covenant is rooted in the reality of the gospel. And that's Jesus Christ. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, you've been so good to us in giving us your word. And Lord, there are just so many things that just go over my head and I read it and I read it and I read it and I study and I study and I try to process these things and then stand up here as a mere human and try to communicate them. And as I and as I often pray, I just pray that you would cause truth to land and have impact and, and, and stir and change and do what's necessary. Or that you would you would guard me from any error. Lord, that you would uh, make things clear to me as you've called me to this this position. So I have to trust that if you've called me, you've called Austin, whomever else, that you'll also equip us, you'll equip us and help us. And so I ask for that. I ask that we could process these things and think on these things and look at the bigger picture and see how it all comes into frame and comes into focus. Um, Lord, that we would do those things. 
and uh, have a greater appreciation for your word. Lord, we don't deserve to even love your word, but we ask that you would give us a greater love. Lord, we don't, it's, it's a privilege to, to be subjected to it, Lord. It's, a, it's an honor and a grace, uh, Lord, to, to, to submit to its authority. Lord, help us to see it that way, not as a, an attempt for you to steal our joy, but to supply joy. Help us to see it that way, Lord, because in our, in our finiteness and our weakness, some, sometimes we don't, sometimes I don't. Lord, I know you're not out to get us. Lord, you, 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 your, your love, uh, your love is, is more than, than, than we can understand. Lord, and it's expressed in your word. It's expressed in your covenants. It's expressed in, in the great hope that we have. It's expressed in Christ and his atonement. Lord, and I pray that, that we would be elated, Lord, that we would be beside ourselves when considering the great love that you have for your church and count ourselves privileged to be a part of it and connect.